morning, everyone. Um, welcome to our fellowship this morning. We have such a golden opportunity one more time to reflect on the scriptures that are before us. And we thank God. I'd like us to read Hebrews chapter number 6 and verse 1 and 2. Last time, if you remember, we did read Hebrews chapter number 4. And three times I think we saw the invitation for us to take action. And so, um, Hebrews chapter number 6, verse 1 and 2. And this is what the writer would even remind us this morning. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will, if God permits. And I've come to understand that when the writer uses the word, let us, it is an action. It is something that we are to do. And so in this instance, we are being invited against the backdrop of Hebrews 5, 12 to 14, talking about the immaturity and maturity therein. The invitation to us is to go on to perfection, to maturity. I'm going to skip to chapter number 12 of the same book and read the first two verses, which I believe that are not new to us. Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2, having given us a history in chapter 11 of these men and women who lived by faith and the commendation therein, the writer of Hebrews continues to tell us, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he tells us, number one, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Three times the writer says, let us, an invitation number one, to lay aside every weight, an invitation to lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us, and an invitation to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so let's continue with our lesson. In the last two parts we have been looking at the title, he opened the scriptures to us, that we have borrowed from Luke chapter number 24, verse 32. And these are the two disciples that we have been reflecting upon. And by the time uh, they are coming to this point, Christ has opened the scriptures to them. And they say to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? And this is verse 32, but I think in the last two uh, lessons we have dwelt on verse 1, I think, to around 
18 thereabout. And so let's just do a little recap before we put today's lesson into context that to these two disciples, Jesus was a stranger to them. As they did not know him at this time, in verse uh, 17 to 18 of Luke 24, and we did see that they represent the nation of Israel, a nation that did not know Christ during his first advent, as John would remind us in John 1, 10 to 12. We saw examples of others who did not know that Jesus was in their midst, one being Mary. She saw Jesus after his resurrection, but she supposed that he was the gardener. The brothers of Joseph did not know that it was him when they went to buy grain because there was famine at the time. And Joseph, remember, is a type of Christ. But they did not know him, although he knew them. And since the eyes of these disciples were restrained from knowing him, they spoke to Jesus about Jesus. And they were stuck with the law, as we saw in that lesson. They were thus in the flesh, walking in the letter, and not in the spirit of it. They did not understand the spirit of the law. And we know from 2 Corinthians 3, 12, to 15, speaking holistically of the nation of Israel, there was a veil that lay on the heart of these two disciples that was unlifted at the time. And as a result, these two disciples referred to the scriptures without knowing that they were doing so. In a manner of speaking, therefore, they were spiritually blind. And you know, spiritual blindness will make God's word, even though it is an open book, it will be a closed book to us. Christ, dear friends, is in our midst through the, through the scriptures, the word made flesh, and this must be rightly divided. However, just like with the nation of Israel, the church is blind to matters beyond eternal salvation, and that is the salvation of the soul. And I'm sure that this is where all of us were at some point, but behold, out of the abundance of his grace and mercy, he has brought us to this understanding. Believers have only been taught the gospel of the grace of God to be the only gospel in the scriptures. And we know that this is a work that began early in the dispensation when there was that leaven that, were added, that was added to the three measures of meal. And I submit to us that having the letter and all the spirit of God's word will expose a believer to a cycle of frustration, confusion, and despair making a believer a stranger to the scriptures, but yet seeing the Christ in it as a stranger. And I ask us this morning, who is a stranger? Is it Christ or is it you and I? And we dwelt on the point that when the report of the resurrection of Jesus came to the disciples, they had only one response, a response of unbelief. And in this, they did not believe God himself and thereby attracting that rebuke that we saw in Mark 16 verse 14 where Jesus rebuked them. And so even as we would come to that point of not believing what God has said, in essence what we are saying is that we don't believe God. And as I continue to study, I wonder is this a manifestation of their attitude towards God's word? By failing to believe the report concerning the resurrection of Jesus, we may as well conclude that the attitude that the disciples had towards the word of God was not right. 
it was not a positive one. And maybe we are asking, how can this be? And we have seen that Christ did not shy to tell his disciples that he was about to die. In Matthew 17, in Luke 9, and in other passages of Scripture, we saw that he clearly, openly told them that he was about to die and that his death would bring to fulfillment the things that were written by the prophets. Reading Luke 18, verse 31, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. And Jesus was making a reference to the suffering that he would go through. And you know the Old Testament scriptures were in their possession. And for a disciple who heard what Jesus said, they must have been curious to go and search out what exactly did the prophets write concerning the Son of Man. But they did not. And you know, true to his word, Jesus was crucified. He died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. And the women went to the tomb and they were told as much by the two men who reminded them what Christ had told them, that he had to be crucified, he had to die, he had to be buried, but more importantly, that he was to rise on the third day. Reading Mark's account in Mark 16, verse 6 to 7, But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. And therefore it was well within their space, so to speak, to know that Jesus would die and that he would rise again. And these women, having heard this, like we saw in Luke 24, 9, they returned to report this news to the disciples. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Yet when the disciples heard this report, they did not believe, despite the fact that Jesus had told them so, as was recorded for them in the Old Testament scriptures that were in their possession. In Mark 16, 11, And when they heard that he was alive, and had been seen by her, they did not believe. And in our last lesson, we did see that the word for not believe is actually the opposite of the word for believe. In other words, they did not exercise faith. And this response, therefore, is a clear demonstration of their attitude towards God's word and by extension to God himself. And it is not limited to the disciples in this context alone. Let me submit to us that even for us as we continue with our pilgrim journey, as often as we would study the word rightly divided, but we choose not to believe, then in a manner of speaking, it has exposed the kind of attitude that we have, not only towards the word of God, but towards God himself. The value, the worth that we assign to an object or a subject is strongly and positively correlated with our understanding of its nature and its attribute. And it is this understanding that will influence our evaluation, our judgment of that object or subject, and that is our attitude. Let me repeat that the value, the worth that we assign to an object or to a subject is strongly and positively correlated with our understanding 
of its nature and its attribute. And this understanding will influence our evaluation and our judgment of that object or that subject, and that is our attitude. I am sure that we would not leave a very sharp knife in the hands of children. It is because we know that if we leave it, then they would injure themselves. That would portray our attitude as far as that matter is concerned. And our attitude would equally influence how we interact with something or someone and determines the benefit or profit that will accrue to us or otherwise. And friends, a positive attitude towards God's word finds its best expression in our willingness to study and be taught the rightly divided word of God, followed by our choice to organize our lives in faithful obedience to what God has instructed us. Let me repeat again that a positive attitude towards God's word finds its best expression in our willingness to study and be taught the rightly divided word of God followed by our choice to organize our lives in faithful obedience to what God has instructed us. I don't know what God has said to us in the last while and how much of it have we done. Therein you can find your attitude, my attitude towards God. And developing this positive attitude towards the word of God is not automatic. The Lord has to do a work in us. And this work is based on our cooperation with him, even as we would read in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. A positive attitude will cause us to, have, to value God's word for what it is, and thereby improve the quality of our engagement with it. And this is informed by our understanding of the attributes of the Word of God. And for example, the Word of God is in its best state. It has no error. The Word of God is complete. The psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 89 would remind us this morning that forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. And that word settled is a word that means it is standing firm. It is unchangeable, even as we have sung this morning. But you see, friends, if we don't deem the word of God to be complete, to be in its best state, maybe then that would give us a reason to look for something else. And more often than not, that something else will be corrupted. It will be leavened up. A negative attitude will cause us not to value the word of God. Instead, it will cause us to show contempt to it. For example, when God spoke to Pharaoh through Moses to let his people go, Pharaoh showed utter contempt to God's word in Exodus 5.2. And Pharaoh said, speaking to Moses and Aaron, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. And I'm sure that this can be something that we deem to be very extreme to Pharaoh. I wonder, is it any different with us this morning? Just last week, in the course of learning that which God brought our way, we did see in John chapter number 6, some of the disciples, after hearing what Jesus taught, they concluded that it was a hard teaching. And the scriptures would tell us that they stopped walking with him. 
And there is a question that Jesus asked therein, does this offend you? In other words, does this cause you to be stumbled? Does it cause you to stumble? God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. I am sure that we know that. And among them was that concerning the Sabbath day. Reading Exodus 20, verse 8 to 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Was there anything that was ambiguous with that command? Anything that we found to be strange as we read those three verses? Anything? I am sure that there was nothing ambiguous with the instructions that God gave. As a matter of fact, God had to repeat this in their hearing 11 chapters later, in Exodus 31 verse 12 following. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath. Therefore, for it is holy to you, everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. And maybe before we continue, is God speaking to people who are eternally saved in this particular passage? Did they have spiritual capacity to understand what God is saying? Absolutely. And I'm sure that what God has said is very clear that there will be no work done on the Sabbath day. Now let us see whether there was positive attitude or negative attitude. Because in Numbers 15.32 following, there was found a man who violated this command. Now while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Is it because they were in the wilderness that this man thought gathering sticks on the Sabbath was not a serious affair? I wonder. And yet God in giving the command, he has said that this was a statue they were to follow for their generation, throughout your generations. It did not matter that they were in the wilderness. God had given an instruction. And this man chose to violate 
this very command concerning the Sabbath. And only one fate awaited him. Continuing in verse 35 of Numbers 15, Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. You know, friends, when we read Exodus 20 and 31, God was not joking. If anything, he was serious. And despite God being a merciful God, when it comes to the violation of his word, then he will do that which he has said will befall us. And I imagine that this, as I read this account of this man, it reminded me of Genesis 2, 16 to 17, where God said that if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. But the serpent came and deceived the woman, saying, you shall not surely die. And by the end of that, we know that she had eaten from that fruit. And ultimately, there was death. Let me submit to us that God will do that which he has spoken. And Numbers 23, 19, that is known to us, would remind us this morning that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? As far as observing the Sabbath is concerned, as we have seen, God surely made good what he had said, that because this man had violated this command, only one thing was left, and that is death. And while we see this man eternally saved, physically dead, it also means that he did not enter rest. In other words, he missed the opportunity to enter the land of promise. And if that is the type, so with the antitype, because God does not change. God has magnified his word above his name, and he invites us to embrace the same attitude towards his word. In Psalm 138, verse 2, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. And therefore, friends, if we are to magnify God's word above his name, if God's word is to be magnified in our lives, then we shall be like those that um, God describes in Isaiah 66, verse 2 and 5, because we will have an, a positive attitude, causing us to tremble at his word. Isaiah 66, verse 2, and skipping to verse 5, God says, For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. And in verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. And when I check the meaning of that word, look, it is a word that means to look at intently, to regard with pleasure, with favor, with care, to have respect for. And what God is saying is that on this one, I will regard with pleasure. I will have respect for one who is poor and of a contrite spirit, but one who also trembles at his word. 
And we are not talking about vibrating as we study the scriptures. No, that is not what God is saying. To tremble at God's word is to be fearful. It is to be reverential. It is to be afraid. And that is to say that we must not be casual. We must not be complacent. We must not be careless regarding the word of God. I find a very encouraging example in Joseph. One I think, in my opinion, trembled at the word of God. Reading Genesis 39 verse 9, there is no one greater. This is uh, Joseph speaking to Potiphar's wife. There is no one greater in this house than I. Nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That if we tremble at the word of God, then it doesn't matter whether we are by ourselves. We are not going to do any form of wickedness and sin against God. A positive attitude like that of Jeremiah's will cause us to search for God's word. And when we find it, we will eat it. In Jeremiah 15, 16, that is also not new to us. Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. When was the last time that you sat down to search the scriptures? When was the last time that you found it? And when you did, did you feed on it? And if you did, did it become the joy and rejoicing of your heart? A positive attitude like that of Job will cause us to treasure the word of God. And Job 23, 12 would remind us that I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than, our, more than my necessary food. Can this be said of us individually this morning? Have we also come to that point where we can boldly say that I have not departed from the commandment of his lips? Have we treasured the words of God's mouth more than our necessary food? Or have we treasured our necessary food more than the words of his mouth? I submit to us this morning that a positive attitude, by way of just repeating myself, a positive attitude towards the word of God will cause us to study and be taught the word of God and not for head knowledge, but with a view to transforming our lives as we choose to cooperate with him. We will therefore not take the warnings the instructions that he gave us to be suggestions. God was not giving a suggestion as far as the Sabbath is concerned. And therefore, we will take the word of God and give it the seriousness that it deserves. That is the attitude that we are to have concerning the word of God. That includes that which we study on a day-to-day -day basis. That includes what we study on a Sunday morning. And you know, as I reflect on these disciples, having heard and having seen the unbelief in them, I only concluded that they did not have a positive attitude towards the word of God. And you know, continuing with them, they had a hope. And even as we would have sung those two last songs, there was something therein about hope. And so reading Luke 24, 21, continuing with the two disciples, they continued to tell Jesus, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. And the Greek word for hoping 
means to expect, to confide, to have hope, to hope for, to trust, and originates from another word which means to anticipate, and usually with pleasure, with expectation. It means confidence, it means faith. And you know, when you read that it means anticipating something, usually with pleasure, it has to be something positive, isn't it? I doubt whether we go to work for those of us who go to work and say, uh, I'm hoping to be fired today. No, that doesn't add up at all. And therefore, these two disciples and the Jews who had embraced him to be the Christ had an anticipation. They had an expectation. They had confidence. They had faith that he would redeem Israel. And I'm sure that that was such a good hope. And during the first advent of Christ, I'm sure we know that Israel was under Roman oppression. And therefore the Jews were expecting a powerful Messiah, so to speak. One who would liberate them from this oppression by the Romans. Was that not such a noble hope that they had? The Jews did not anticipate a suffering Messiah. Although the Old Testament scriptures that were in their possession testified to this. They must have been taught the law. They must have known that Isaiah 53, 2-3, and skipping to verse 7, would tell them, and even us today this morning, for he shall grow, speaking of Christ, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And I'm sure for the disciple that had been with Jesus, even as he was, you know, taken to the high priest, taken to Pilate, to Herod, they must have seen. But did they make a connection with what Isaiah had recorded? Absolutely not. The Samaritan woman had an idea about a Messiah. And when she speaks to Jesus in John 4:25, she said to Christ, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And friends, owing to the reality that they were under Roman oppression, coupled by the fact that Jesus, whom they hoped would redeem them, had suffered humiliation to the point of death, and that on that day his body was missing, probably their hopes of deliverance were diminished. In verse 22 of Luke 24, continuing, Yes, these disciples tell Jesus, And certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came, saying that they had seen a vision of angels, who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. 
probably to these disciples, there was one conclusion that they made. It is all over. And therefore, when they heard that he had resurrected, that report was unbelievable to them. Their hopes had been dashed. Their expectations had been dashed. And you know, I submit to us that that is what realities in life sometimes would do to us. They make us imagine that what God has said, he did not mean. Let us go back to the Old Testament and see God speaking to Moses, telling him that I have come down to deliver them, speaking of the children of Israel. And having seen his people under Egyptian oppression, God sent Moses, a type of Christ, to deliver them. And God had known the extent of their agony. Reading Exodus 3, verse 7 to 10, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hevites and the Jebusites. Now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You know, as we have been praying every Monday, there is that last prayer that we pray for our needs and we say that we pray from a point of um, understanding that God knows what we need even before we ask him. And I wonder whether this would cement that understanding, that here is God telling Moses that he had seen the oppression of his people that he had heard their cry because of their taskmasters, that he had known their sorrows. And as a result, he tells Moses, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. You know, sometimes when we go through something of this nature, it sounds to me like the other voice would begin to tell me that God has left me, that in fact God doesn't know that I'm under oppression of whatever kind. But I think reading these verses, it is very clear to us that God had known what the children of Israel were going through. And therefore we see Moses and Aaron going to the Israelites to convey this message to them. And in Exodus 4:30 to 31, there was a positive response. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. I am sure that at this moment there was expectation that was beginning to build up in their hearts. There must have been hope birthed in their hearts that finally we are about to leave Egypt. Moses and Aaron presented themselves before Pharaoh to convey the same message. In Exodus 5, verse 1, afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. 
But there was a response from Pharaoh. He would not hear any of it. In verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. And in verse 4 to 5, he says, Then the king of Egypt said to them, That is Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. And you know, friends, as a result of this response from Pharaoh, the Israelites began to despair. Their hope began to dwindle. And in verse 20, when their leaders left Pharaoh, the scriptures tell us, as they came out from Pharaoh, they uh, came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them, maybe expecting good news after they had gone to petition Pharaoh because of the increased labor. And they said to Moses and Aaron, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. You know, when you compare this response and you check the first one in Ephesians 4.30, there was nothing to write home about. They must have given Moses and Aaron that look of, you have made a mess of us. But you know, friends, I was encouraged to know that God did not change his mind regarding his promise to deliver his people from Egyptian oppression. And he sent Moses a second time to them. And you know what? He did not revise his promise. He did not edit even an iota of it. He did not say, by the way, because of that oppression, I think I have changed my mind. I will come and redeem you after some time. No. Reading Exodus 6, verse 6 to 8, Therefore, this is God speaking to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. He had spoken. And seven times God says, I will. And one of them is he promised to redeem the Israelites. And you know, when I think about this promise, it reminds us of the same hope that we have read about the two disciples who told Jesus. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And unlike the first time when they had God's promise and believed, this time around, the Israelites did not even heed to Moses. Why? Because of anguish of spirit and bondage from the Egyptians. Reading verse 9 of Exodus 6, after this message that God has given to Moses to give to the children of Israel. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. But did they clap this time? Did they believe this time? They did not. 
the scriptures tell us, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And the Hebrew word for heed means to hear intelligently, often with implication of attention and obedience. What that tells us is that even though they heard him, they did not hear with this implication of attention. They were not attentive to what Moses was saying. And I ask, was this a response of unbelief on their part because of this reality? God has spoken. God has said, I'm going to deliver you. And instead of things getting better, things got worse. Pharaoh began to make their work even more difficult. And as a result, maybe they were thinking, Moses and Aaron, why did you mess with our hopes? The Israelites did not heed Moses. By extension, they did not heed God who sent him. And this response was informed by one thing, the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage exerted by the Egyptians. You know, when God sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh and told him to let his people go, Pharaoh intensified his oppression. And this is what we didn't read in verse 6 to 9 of Exodus 5. But we will read it now. So the same day, the same day that Moses and Aaron showed up before Pharaoh, that same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quarter of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. You know, my human mind tells me that if God was going to intervene, the work would have reduced. But instead of this work being reduced, it was increased. And you know, herein is therefore the reality that God has spoken and a reality that the oppression has gone up. And the question is, which side of the realities were the children of Israel going to fall for? Without a doubt, God had promised to deliver his people. Had he not? He had promised, isn't it? And you know, he did not speak hollow words to Moses. Isaiah tells us in chapter 55, verse 10 and 11, a scripture that we all know. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. That since he sent his word of deliverance, a promise of deliverance, then based on the truth of this word, by all means, the children of Israel would be delivered. And without a doubt, God having promised to deliver his people, the Israelites remained under the Egyptian oppression. In Exodus 5:22 to 23, then Moses went back to the Lord and protested, why have you brought all this trouble to your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, he has been even more brutal to your people, and you have done nothing 
to rescue them. What a cry from Moses himself. He's also acknowledging that things have become thick. And I ask us this morning, did the Egyptian oppression invalidate God's promise to his people? And just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, the disciples of Jesus and all Israel with them had very high hopes of being delivered from the Roman oppression. But you and, know, you and I know that by the time we are reading this, they still continue to be under the Roman oppression. And I ask a question as a follow-up to the first. Did the death of Jesus invalidate his promise to deliver his people? Where is our hope this morning, friends? Where was the hope of these disciples? Because they seem to be speaking like we have said, those of our hope is gone. And Proverbs 13, 12 tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. Were the hearts of these two disciples and the rest sick because hope was deferred? Job 6, 11 asks these questions. What strength do I have that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? And as we come to the end of this lesson, there is an encouragement for the Jews in Psalm 130, verse 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The truth of the matter is that the time is coming when God will make true his promise. But as of the disciples, because of the realities that they faced, the Roman oppression, the death of Jesus, his burial, some of them decided it was time to call it quits. You and I remember that when Jesus called his disciples, they left everything to follow him. Luke 5.4 gives us an account that when Jesus had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to, to land, they forsook all and followed him. I've always been intrigued by these disciples, that they had walked the entire night looking for fish, and when they had caught so much fish, they left it. You know why? So that they may follow him, because he had told them, from now on, you will catch men. You know, they forsook everything. And you know, having given up their occupation, that of fishing, like we have read of this, the disciples in Luke 5, they were legitimately worried. You know, Jesus did not promise that they would be on his payroll. They were not on a pensionable job anymore. And maybe because of the realities that they faced, their response was one, that of worry. And maybe that may be the case with us this morning. And Jesus speaking to them in Matthew 6, 25, 
he tells them, Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. And I'm made to understand the way this is worded in the Greek. Jesus is telling them, stop worrying as you have been doing. They had been worried. And he commands them not to worry about life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And in verse 28, Jesus asked them, So why do you worry about clothing? And in verse 30 to 32, Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. However, when the push came to shove, after the death and burial of Jesus Christ, seven of the disciples of Jesus went back to their familiar trade, that of fishing. And you may want to read John 20, uh, 21 from verse 1 uh, following, but for today in by bringing this lesson to a close, I'll just read verse 2. Simon Peter, who else, said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we are going with you also. You are not leaving us behind. And they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night, just like before, they caught nothing. And I wonder, dear friends, this morning, have we gone back fishing? Have we forsaken the pursuit of the kingdom like we had before? Have the realities of our lives today caused us to look away from what God has been teaching us to seeking solutions for the realities before us? I end by telling us that left unchecked, our realities will speak louder than the word of God. And this will be a catalyst for a negative attitude towards the word of God. And this will birth unbelief. And the net effect is that we will be drawn away from the pursuit of the kingdom to the resolution of those realities. Permit me to repeat. The left unchecked, our realities will speak louder than the word of God. And this will catalyze a negative attitude towards the word of God. And this will birth unbelief on our part, whose net effect is that we will be drawn away from the pursuit of the kingdom to the resolution of those realities. And I read to us Psalm 42, verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance, and my God. And I may not know the realities that you face this morning. But you know, even as I prepared this lesson, I finished, I sent it to pastor, and I told pastor, you know, I think this is a lesson I may ask you to ask somebody to just come and read. It is because of the realities that I know I have faced and I have not responded in faith. 
And I think the last one and a half weeks have been difficult. I've just been thinking, how am I going to give this lesson? But I thank God that he would uh, grace us to go through this. I don't know how you have handled your realities. We are not running away from the admission that there are things that we need, that we um, would have resolved. But you know, dear friends, Matthew 6, 33, that I did not include would tell us that instead of seeking after these things of the Gentiles seek, yet your heavenly Father knows that we are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all those things that he knows we need, scripture says that they will be added to us. I'd like us to stand and sing this hymn that is known to all of us. What a friend we have in Jesus. And as we sing, I pray that we will put the lesson into context and be persuaded against all odds that the Lord knows what we need and that it is in his time and in his time that is going to make provision or intervention for that matter. Our responsibility, my brothers and my sisters, is to continue to seek the kingdom. Let me ask us to stand and sing this song before I make the closing prayer. Say 
So, friends, as we continue with our pilgrim journey, knowing very well that we will, if we are not currently facing realities, that the Lord will help us in the course of studying during the week. Allow me to read this last quote and then we pray that the focus of God's word toward his people is not the here and now apart from the then and there. His focus for us is on the here and now with respect to the then and there. We are to see our life in the present with an ongoing ever-present realization that the future is what the present is all about, is what um, the present is all about. Let me take that again. That we are to see our life in the present with an ongoing ever-present realization that the future is what the present is all about. And everything that comes into our lives, every trial we encounter, Every opportunity that is presented, whether good, bad, or ugly, is an opportunity that we have to walk in faith, in scriptural faith, and our faithfulness will be worth it in the end. Shall we pray? Our gracious Father and our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you, God, and we bless you that you have gathered us here this morning. Lord, we bless you because you would instruct us in your word not to stop the habit of meeting together. But the Lord, even as we meet, it is with a view to stirring one another unto love and good works, especially because that day is fast approaching. And gracious God, we thank you for the lesson that we have just learned, O oh God. We bless you that you are a real God in the midst of the realities that we may be facing or that we will face in the days ahead. And gracious God, I pray the Lord, we shall continue, dear Father, to uh, be persuaded, dear Father, that you are our Heavenly Father, who knows the things that we need even before we ask you. And therefore, gracious God, as we continue with our rest of the faith, help us to prioritize the kingdom. Help us to have the right attitude towards your word. Help us, dear Father, to continue, dear Father, to hold fast our confession. And the Lord, even as we will continue, therefore, that, Lord, we shall remain faithful so that, Lord, when we stand before you, Lord, on that day, the Lord, we shall hear the wonderful words of accolades. Well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, that is the hope that we have. That is our expectation, dear God. Would you therefore help us, dear Father, to follow your word and not that which our realities will dictate. We thank you, God, and we bless you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.